my salvation. I want to give thanks to my pastor, Pastor Stevan and Sister Chella, for uh, allowing me to speak tonight. I don't think this lightly. I want to give a thanks to Shane Willard and his family for being here with us tonight. And uh, so before I start, I would like to open up in a word of prayer. If you guys would please bow your heads and open your eyes. Close your eyes, I mean. <laughs> Amen. Uh, my God, I come before you, and I just want to give you thanks for this opportunity. I ask my God that you would allow me, Father, to be a vessel today to bring forth your word, Father, that you would use me to just pour into these people the word that you've given to me and that it would flow out, Father, as you have given it unto me, as it would be bold and assertive, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Man, so uh, the scripture that I'm going to be speaking out of today would be uh, 1 Samuel, chapter 17, beginning of verse 32 and ending at verse 37. And the word of God says, David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on the count of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from, his, from its mouth. When it turned on me, I sized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. The, this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescues me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. Now what we immediately see in these scriptures is that David was a man with great courage and confidence. But what we need to realize is that David's courage was mostly based on God's help in his previous battles against these lions and these bears. You see it was in his battles that in the shepherd's field that David learned to trust in God and thus no matter the size of the battle or in the case of Goliath, the opponent, David teaches us that with God on our side and our trusted in him, the victory is assured. See, it was in the shepherd's field that God began to shape and mold David. He spent one-on-one one -on -one time with him, building up his courage, his faith, and his determination in battle, making him, again, making him a man worthy of the title Top Gun. You see, young David was so skilled and well-trained that he killed a 10-foot giant with just a sling and a rock. That's like killing somebody with a straw, a rubber band, and a paper clip, <laughs> which is possible. You know, those of you who've been to prison know what I'm talking about. You guys, <laughs> you guys used to make shanks out of anything, your toothbrush, your sporks, your toenail clippings. <laughs> now, one thing we must always remember is our past victories, because it's through those various battles that God builds us, builds us up and trains us and prepares us for the bigger trials that lie ahead. Because just when we think we've climbed the tallest mountain, a bigger one rises over the horizon. You see, even though we have received our calling and we might even know the destination of our walk, we must never forget that there's always a journey from point A to point B. And with that journey come rough paths. But if we get prepared and properly attired, then we will successfully reach our destination. So if we want to be top guns like David, we must be like David, faithful, obedient, and loyal to our commander-in-chief. Is these traits that keep a man focused on his mission and pushes a warrior to stop at, at nothing to achieve the victory? How many of us know that these are the kind of men that we build here at Victory Outreach? Just look around. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, you're a top gun. So I just, I just want to encourage you gentlemen, if you're not a 
If you're not part of God's elite top gun, enlist today and be all you can be for God. Amen. Amen. Come on, give him a hand, amen. Come on, give, give him a hand, amen. That is a powerful, living, walking, talking, breathing miracle that you just heard. And, man, just, just hearing him talk and share, I know that right now he shared some stories that went, made you go, I've never been to prison, man. I didn't know you could do that with toenails, clippings. <laughs> Only in victory outreach, amen. Only in victory outreach. Well, listen, I am excited to be here tonight. I've been in anticipation for this evening for a very long time. And just having a, a, a gathering like this, I know this is our normal men's gathering. That's why he was talking about raising up men and uh, elite men for God's honor and God's glory. But tonight we wanted to definitely uh, make an exception because we definitely wanted the, uh, the women to gather with us tonight and also tomorrow evening as well. And just to make sure that as we gather together that we, we just have a hunger for God, a desire for God, that that appetite would constantly be every day say, God, I want more of you and less of me. The world always tries to overtake those desires, but that we would say, no, you know what, God, I, I need more of you today. The, the world's trying to take my passion. The world's trying to take my love, but God, you're number one. You're number one. And so here tonight, why don't you stand with me? And if we can, can we get the worship team? Can we sing that song, Jesus at the Center of It All? Can we do that? I've been thinking about that song here this evening. And if you can, if you could just... Take a few moments and let's just focus on God. Let's prepare our hearts. Let's prepare our minds. Let's prepare for what God has for us here tonight as we sing this song, Jesus at the center of it all. Lift your hands with me and let's sing. Jesus at the center of it all. Come on, Jesus at the center. Jesus at the center of it all. From beginning to the end. From beginning to the end, it'll always be, it's always been you, Jesus. Jesus, nothing else matters. Nothing in this world. Nothing in this world will do. Jesus, oh God. Jesus be the same. 
Take your time and sing a song if you want to. Come on, lift your voice unto him. Let everything that has breath. Come on, if you've got breath here tonight, may it praise the Lord. May it bless the Lord. Come on, let it, let it be a sweet, sweet sound into his ear. It will be pleasing unto God. Oh, hallelujah. Come on, let our bodies, our minds, our souls want to please him. Oh, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, find favor. Find favor in this room and your people here tonight. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, it's all about you, Jesus. Hallelujah, Lord. I love you, Jesus. Oh, from my heart to the heavens, Lord. My heart to the heavens, Lord. Jesus. Jesus, you're the center of it all. somebody came into our church one time and they had asked me, they said, why do you guys sing so much? Why do you guys worship so much? And my first initial answer was, I feel that I worship him too little. That was my initial answer. I, feel like I, don't, I, if, I heard a preacher once say, if I had a thousand tongues, I could worship him enough. And so my prayer is that my life would be pleasing unto God. Not perfect. I'll, ne I'll never attain perfection here on this earth. It's not going to happen. But I want to be pleasing unto God. Let everything that I do be pleasing unto God. And so here tonight, I, I know that what we're going to dive into, I, I believe that we're not coming to attain perfection. It's not why we do this. We don't come to give you a bunch of head knowledge and give you goosebumps where you go, ooh, that sounds great, and then you leave and you're the same person. The Word of God is supposed to transform us. So my prayer here tonight is that each and every one of you would leave here saying, I have been transformed. Something changed within my life. Something shifted within my mentality. Something now, there's a habit that's going to break. That's my prayer here tonight. 
And so, uh, listen, here in the heart of the bay has just been something. That there, there's been a, a good life flow that's been happening here in the heart of the bay, hasn't there? A great life flow. If you believe that, give the Lord a hand of praise. Maybe they could turn the lights up a little bit. They could turn on. Here tonight, I'm excited because uh, we have a great friend who was with us last year. And uh, he came and he just tore the house down. Amen. And so we brought him back again. And he was in town. And I, I was sharing with him earlier uh, because I, I'm a Niner fan. I'm a diehard Niner fan. He actually, he's a, a South Carolina. And we drafted, I believe, the, the best running back in the draft. Uh, and uh, Lattimore, and he's from South Carolina. So I was like, yeah, all right, the Niners. You know, there, there's always that preseason hope, right? And then all of a sudden, you lose in the Super Bowl, go, Niners. But it's okay, there's hope right now. I have hope, amen. Raider fans and Niner fans, we're together. We have hope, amen. There's hope. <laughs> so I, I'm excited uh, to have him here. Also, he uh, brought some. Uh, friends with them as well who are actually I just learned they're from Portland, Oregon. Came all the way down from Portland, amen. Give them a hand. And also I, I met somebody from my arch rival school, Valley Christian, amen. I grew up in Fremont Christian and I go, you can't sit at my table no more. That's it. You get, no, I'm just kidding. So, but uh, they're here with us as well and it's always great to have family uh, apart. We're one big body. Can I hear an Amen. One big body. Also great to have Pastor Victor with us from New Hope Church. Amen. New Hope Fellowship. And so now, heart of the bay, are you ready? Amen. Are the men ready? Amen. Are the women ready? Amen. Listen, here tonight, we'll just I'm pumped. I really am pumped. I wish I could give him a longer introduction, but I want to give him a lot of time. I'm ready. My heart is ready. My mind is ready. I pray that you are ready. I want you to give a great big hand to our evangelist teacher, Shane Willard. Come on, give him a great big hand here tonight. All right. All right, you can be seated. We're going to have some fun tonight. You can turn your Bible to Jonah chapter 4. We're going to start there. I want to talk to you about the cross. And I want to talk to you about how you relate to it and what that means for you. We're going to talk about this over the next two nights. Because I want to talk to you about something very critical to understanding where you are and where you need to go. I'm on your way out tonight. For those of you who don't know me, this is all I do. I travel around. I've been had the incredible privilege of being mentored by a pastor with his rabbi training. I also have a master's degree in clinical psychology. So if you need help with your head, I can try. All right? All right. On your way out, I do have a table set up with, with our stuff. If you want to come by and avail yourself to that, 100% of the profit from that goes to our main mission in the world, which is to take care of the poor and the afflicted. And so we believe that those of us with, with uh, privilege ought to be doing something for those who do not have it. And so that's what that is for. You can come back and check that out. I have my friends here. Um, they're going to be helping me back there. So it frees me up to pray with people and do whatever needs to be done. And so you guys come back and, um, and check those things out. All right. Jonah chapter 4. Now, Jonah chapter 4 is at the end of the book of Jonah. So if we're going to read the end, we have to set some context on what had happened. So let me tell the story very quickly. There's a guy named Jonah. He's the son of Amittai. He was called by God to preach to a place called Nineveh. Quick history of Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. 
Assyria was the most ruthless, horrible, longest standing empire in the history of the world. They ruled the entire world with fear, oppression, raping, pillaging. It was horrific what they did. They had mastered the art of, of peeling people's faces off who crossed them, all right? So if you crossed them, they didn't want to kill you. That was too nice. They had mastered the art of cutting just the right places on your face, not deep enough to kill you. They would pull your face off and leave you alive as an example. This is what happens when you mess with us. There's this one story from Assyrian history about a guy named Tiglath-Pileser. And Tiglath-Pileser was an emperor. Um, would you agree that if your mother named you Tiglath-Pileser, you'd have severe issues, right? I mean, this is just this. Like, what are you thinking, right? And so Tiglath-Pileser got word that this small farming community was going to revolt against them. And so he brought two platoons of soldiers, and he found the leader of this so-called revolt, and he stood him up in front of everybody, and he slowly peeled his skin off until he died. He hung his skin over the entrance to the town, and he made an edict that said, let any person who walks into this town from this day forward, let him walk underneath this man's skin to be reminded this is what happens when you mess with us. That man had six children. He found their six children. He put their eyes out of their head. He cut their ears off their head, and he cut their nose off their face, and he left all six children alive as a reminder, this is what happens to your children when you mess with us. So God calls Jonah to preach to them. Can you understand his reluctance? God, you, have you ever been scared to go on your evangelism assignments? <laughs> Yet none of you are going to get your face peeled off. God, you are my God. I'll do whatever. But I'm not going there. I'm partial to my skin. So Jonah runs. And he goes to a place called Joppa and he boards a boat to Tarshish. It's a Jewish play on words. The word Joppa means beauty. The word Tarshish means wealth. So Jonah ran from what God called him to be in a pursuit of beauty and wealth. You'd never do that, would you? So then he gets on a boat. And on this boat, there's a big storm. And it's freaking out the professional sailors. And they're like, what do we do? Jonah's like, just throw me overboard, kill me. Professional sailors like, we're not going to do that. That's ridiculous. We're going to throw our cargo overboard first. You're more important than that. So in Jonah chapter 1, you have a prophet of God acting like a pagan, and you have pagan sailors acting like Christians. You've never known that to happen, have you? <laughs> Finally, they give in, and they throw them overboard. There just so happens to be a big fish at the place they throw them overboard. See, when I was in Sunday school, my Sunday school teacher taught me that that was God's judgment. That you better do what God called you to do or you're going to get swallowed. Of course, the fish is not God's judgment. When you're thrown into the open ocean and there happens to be a fish there to swallow you, to save your sorry behind, even though you're doing exactly the opposite thing of what God's called you to do, that's called salvation. That's called mercy. The judgment would be drowning. The fact that there was a fish there is salvation. It's mercy. Of course, he's in, the, he's in the fish three days, and Jonah chapter 2 records what he did in the fish. He, he prayed these prayers. And they just so happen to be ten perfect quotations from Psalms. Have you, have you ever told a story about what happened to you, and you changed the details to make yourself look better? <laughs> Who else was in the belly of the fish with Jonah? No one. Who would have known? Jonah, what did you do in the belly of the fish? Oh, I prayed ten perfect prayers from Psalms. <laughs> that might have been what he did on day three, but I'm thinking the first words out of his mouth were not inspired at all. 
<laughs> so he prays these ten perfect prayers from Psalms. And the last one actually declares the fish his salvation. Of course it is. If you're going to drown in open water and there happens to be a fish there to swallow you. See, the fish is not God's judgment. The fish shows you just how far God will go to save you even if you're doing the exact opposite thing you're supposed to be doing. It's a statement of the mercy of God. So, so then he says, he, he begs God to let him out of the fish. And so God tells the fish to throw up. Once again, mercy. Why? There ain't but two ways out of a fish. <laughs> right? Hello? If the fish doesn't throw up, you're coming out the other end, and that is very unpleasant. Once again, mercy. If the fish doesn't throw up, where does Jonah end up? In the fish's bowel. That is highly unpleasant. Once again, salvation. Jonah comes out and he says, God, what do you want me to do now? God says, I want you to go preach to Nineveh. Jonah says, fine. He goes to Nineveh and he preaches the worst sermon ever preached. He had the opportunity to preach in the biggest city and the most powerful audience in the history of the world up to that time. And he preaches a five-word sermon. It takes eight words to translate it into English, but it's only five words in Hebrew. And this is what it says. Forty days from now, you're going to be destroyed. See you later. No why, no how, no what do we do. Nope, just 40 days from now, you're going to be destroyed. He's playing a trick on them. In the ancient Near East, the number 40 is a euphemism for a very long time. Essentially, he's saying, you got a while, don't worry about it. It backfires on him, and it says everybody in Nineveh repented from the greatest to the least, and even the animals fasted. Now, that is something else. It is one thing for human beings to be so sorry that they lose their appetite. It's a whole other thing for dogs to be like... <laughs> the last line of Jonah chapter 3 is very interesting. The only version of the Bible I've ever seen that got it right is the King James Version. In the NIV, it says this, So God relented of the calamity he had planned. But in Hebrew, there is only three words there. The original language only has three words there, and these are the three words. God repented of evil. It says God, in the King James Version, it actually says that. So God repented of evil. The NIV could not write. The, write the, the translators of the NIV, they couldn't even write that. So God repented of evil because it leads to many questions. Does God, does God need to repent of evil? And if God can repent of evil, is he capable of evil? Maybe we can say it this way. Is there ever a moment where God needs to respond to his own altar call? If, if God can repent of evil, does that mean he's capable of evil? And if he's not capable of evil, then why does he need to repent of evil? The question Jonah chapter 3 leaves us with is, is why is God at the altar repenting? Why is he doing that? The, the way the rabbis teach it, I think, is really beautiful. The way the rabbis teach it is they teach it as divine mirroring. Essentially, it's this. Because you're willing to repent, God's willing to repent with you. It, it, it's essentially, we don't serve a God who's high and mighty sitting on a throne and enjoys our suffering. If you're willing to go through the suffering of repentance, God will not make you go through it alone. He will actually get down on his knees and he will repent with you. We serve a God who understands. So these people were repenting, so God repented. <laughs> you're caught up. Jonah chapter 4 verse 1. Jonah chapter 4 verse 1 says it this way. But Jonah became displeased and was greatly angry. 
And he said to the Lord his God, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? Is this not why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish? I knew that you were a compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiveness, God. A God who repents from evil. I knew it! You were going to be nice! (laughs) So Jonah is mad because God is nice. Do you know anybody like that? I do. I travel this whole world, and if I, if I did a five-day seminar on the judgment of God is coming, Christians clap. Yes! Get them, God! Which I find strangely hypocritical that a group of people who are convinced they're going to escape God's wrath would applaud at the notion that God would get anybody. Wow. See, see, one of the lessons in Jonah is this. Where was Jonah three days before this? He was in the belly of a fish. If God doesn't step in several times, where is Jonah? dead or in a fish's bowel lots of lots of things and yet even after all of that mercy that was shown to Jonah he still thought it was okay to hope God judged people not like him and he couldn't get his head around the fact that God would be nice to people who tear people's faces off in his world those are the evil people that God should get and what God is doing is God is surprising Jonah with his grace he's saying no 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 I'm going to be nice to them too and it makes Jonah mad that God would be nice to anybody not like him but the problem with Jonah is that Jonah forgot what he had been saved from which leads me to this question if Jesus had not touched your life where would you be tonight and if you can't answer that quickly enough, you're not thinking about it enough. Because if we, lose, if we ever lose sight of our fish, we run the risk of thinking we're better than people who aren't where we are. And then before we know it, we lose sight of how much God saved us from. And we think it's okay to sit back and hope God destroys people not like us. That is not what we're called to be. We are called to be people who celebrate justice and mercy for all people. Even Assyrians. See, Jonah was faced with a question that all of us will will be faced with. And you may as well be faced with it tonight so that it'll be in your world and you'll be prepared when God calls you to do it. And that is this. Great people always are willing to relearn the love of God. They're always willing to be stretched and grown. They're always willing to learn something new. They start each day with the notion that they're not right about God. That God is going to put someone in their path today to teach them something to help in the redemptive process of their life. That, that no, one, no one who's a hero of the faith wakes up in the morning and goes, I have figured it all out. And anybody who says something that I don't already know, they're automatically wrong. Those people, you never read about them in history. The people you read about in history are people like Jonah who had to sit back and they had to deal with the tough question. God is being nice to someone that I don't think he should be nice to. Am I willing to celebrate that? Now, to understand where I'm going tonight, we have to understand where the cross fits into history. We have to, Because the cross was the ultimate manifestation of what it meant to relearn God's love. And so, so I want to give you, I want to I teach you sort of the whole Bible tonight, actually. I want to sort of run you through the whole chronology of it. Now, to do this, I'm going to do it in such a way where you'll remember. If I don't do this, you will forget 96% of everything I say by Wednesday, which is horribly depressing because I've worked hard on this. Okay? So I want to teach you... Um, about the cross chronologically, okay? Now, to understand this, we have to understand that throughout the Bible, God was getting closer and God was getting nicer. Let let me tell you what I mean by that. Let's go back to Abraham, okay? If you lived on Abraham's street and you wanted to connect with God, where did God live? 
in heaven. Right, right. Where's that? Where's heaven? It's in the sky somewhere. So God lives in the sky somewhere. So in Abraham's day, God lives up, okay? So I want everybody to say that with me with some Go Raiders, 49ers, Giants, and Warriors gusto, okay? All right, so I want everybody to say up, go, up. Very good, all right? Let's try that again. Say, say it on, on three. Three, two, one, up. One more time just because it's fun. Ready? Three, two, one. Up. All right, so for the rest of the sermon, when I say in Abraham's day, God lived? Up. Very good. In Abraham's day, God lived? Abraham's day, God lived. I say, yeah, he's up in the sky somewhere. Like, God lived up in the sky. Now, we know from the Bible that Abraham was a sun worshiper, right? Very, a little bit off, but that's okay, right? We've got a guy very keen over there, right? We know from the Bible that Abraham was a sun worshiper. Was he a bad guy? Is it bad to worship the sun? Not really. Not if in your concept you think God lives up. And here was the logic. If God lives up in the sky, what's the most powerful thing in the sky? So the sun must be God. So the logic was, if God's in the sky and that's the most powerful thing in the sky, that must be God. Now you can understand where they would have come up with that. And here's the problem. What happens to the sun every day? It goes down. So the sun was the God of the day, so what must have been the God of the night? The moon, right. Because God lives. God lives. In Abraham's day, God lives. All right, so, so the sun's the god of the day, the moon is the god of the night. And the logic was, the sun was more powerful than the moon. Until by observation, they realized that the moon operates on a 28-day cycle. So the moon goes through, you know, new moon, waxing, waning, full moon, new moon, waxing, waning. And it goes on a 28-day cycle. And they worked out, what else in creation operates on a 28-day cycle? Half the room should know this. I can see if the guys go, I have no idea. But the, the women should know that every woman in the room operates on a 28-day cycle. So a woman's menstrual, by, okay, listen, a woman's menstrual cycle is 28. Okay, all right, all right. So just, get, so just so we handled all that, all right? So the logic was, was that the moon was the God controlling the women's mood. How powerful is this moon? So when a full moon came, you had to get out of the cave. But when the new moon comes, it's going to be a good night tonight. Right? So the moon was controlling the women. Because in Abraham's day, God lived. Abraham's day, God lived. And so the sun was the god of the day. The moon was the god of the night. Now, if you're a farmer in ancient Sumeria, what comes out of the sky that is very important to your survival? Rain. So the idea was, is that if it rained, God was um, happy with you. And if it was drought, God was mad. So you, you had to do something to make sure God was appeased. We'll get to that in a second. All I want you to know for now is that in Abraham's day, God lived. 430 years later, there's a guy named Moses. Moses comes along, and Moses challenges what was known to be true. When Moses came along, where did God live? Up. Moses comes along and says, no, that's ridiculous. God doesn't live up. God lives in a tent in the middle of camp. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to build a tent in the middle of camp, and God's going to live there. Now, here's what they worried about. They worried about if anybody ever actually walked in there, they would realize that God didn't live in there. 
And so what they did is they made all these rules about how God lives in there and you're not allowed to go in there. Right? Because if you actually went in there, it'd be a problem. And so they made up all these rules like, if you walk in there, you're going to die. Of course, there's no recorded instance of that ever happening. Right? And so if you walk in there, you're going to die. The problem is, is that this tent was mobile. So if you were in charge of tearing it down and setting it up, how did that work? Like, what if you were the guy inside doing the last peg and it was like, okay, we're done. And you got like 45 seconds to get out. Beep, beep, beep. Like, what, what was going on there? So this was a very primitive sort of view of God. But God moved, Moses moved God from the sky to a tent. Everybody say that with me. Tent. Say it again. Tent. So in Abraham's day, God lived. In Moses' day, God lives in a? Abraham's day, God lives. Moses, in Moses' day, God lives in a? Tent. So God's getting closer. Was Moses right? Does God live in a tent? No, but that's one step closer. And so when you start messing with people's view of God, what, what do they call you? Heretic. Everybody knows God lives up. It's in our verses. It's in our websites. It's in our, it's in our, it's in our pamphlets. It's in our fundamental truths. Everybody, everybody knows God lives up. Moses is like, no, I think that's actually ridiculous. What we're going to do is we're going to do something less ridiculous, and we're going to put him in a tent. So then David comes along. This is years later. David comes along and says, no, God doesn't live in a tent. That's ridiculous. He needs a building. So we're going to build God a temple. And David started the process of building a temple, which his son Solomon then finished. So, in Abraham's day, God lived where? Up. Moses' day, he lives in a tent. David's day, he lives in a temple. God's getting closer. He's getting closer. Then Jesus comes along. And the writers say things like, The word has become flesh and is tabernacling amongst us. So, in Jesus' day, God lives in flesh. Everybody say that. In Jesus' day, God lives in flesh. So let's review. In Abraham's day, God lives up. Moses' day, he lives in a tent. David's day, he lives in a temple. In Jesus' day, he lives in flesh. Like this God's walking around amongst us, teaching us how to live. So, so from Abraham to Jesus, God keeps getting closer. He keeps getting closer and closer and closer. In Abraham's day, he lives in the, he lives up. In Moses' day, he lives in a tent. David's day, he lives in, in Jesus' day, he lives in flesh. So God's getting closer and closer and closer. And every time someone said something new about God, they were called a heretic. Anytime you see a bunch of pastors ganging up on one guy calling him a heretic, just wait 30 years, he'll be a hero. Every hero of the faith was a heretic in their day. Why? Because everybody that was worth anything was willing to challenge the process and relearn the love of God. They're the people going, yeah, I know you think God lives up, but I'm telling you, he's closer than what you think. He's nicer than what you think. He, he's something, he's, you're wrong about something. I mean, honestly, do you honestly think you're right about God? Do you think you're the one that's going to get to heaven one day and Jesus be impressed? Like, wow, you were something I thought my ways were high above your ways, and I thought my thoughts were high above your thoughts until I met you. <laughs> no, there were the people going, wait a minute, wait a minute. Abraham's like, yeah, he's up in the sky. Moses is like, no, no, let's make him a tent. David's like, no, 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 let's, let's build him a building. Jesus is like, no, I'm going to just walk around amongst you and teach you how to live. Then in Paul's day, Paul actually made God closer than that. Paul said, don't you know that you are the temple of the living God? So, let's review. In Abraham's day, God lived where? 
up. All right, a little more together and a little more gusto, right? In Abraham's day, God lived. Moses' day, he lives in a tent. David's day, he lives in a temple. Jesus' day, he lives in flesh. And in Paul's day, he lives in us. He's now in me and you and, and you and you and you. And Paul doesn't delineate that like God's here but not here. God says, no, no, no. If you look around, every living soul belongs to God. Anyone breathing air, they're God's. So, so, because it's very dangerous to ever become a group of people who think you belong to God, but they don't. Because if you think you belong to God, but they don't belong to God, it gives you license to treat them any way you want. We couldn't have that. Because what that would be, that would be a group of people who treat other people less than human. It is, it is within God and it is within all of us to celebrate the mercy of God for people we don't even think are like us. It is a command of God for, for us to relearn the love of God. And throughout the Bible, God was getting closer, but he was also getting nicer. One more review on closer. And Abraham, together with some gusto. In Abraham's day, God lived up. Moses' day, he lives in a tent. David's day, he lives in a temple. Jesus' day, he lives in flesh. And in Paul's day, he lives in us. So God's getting closer. You, you realize that for Paul to say that we were the temple of God, that he was beaten with 39 lashes five times as being a heretic? He's the hero of our faith. But yet in his day, he was called a heretic by his peers because he said something different about God. Listen, every hero of the faith today was a heretic in their day. Every hero. Moses, heretic. David, heretic. The prophet Micah, I'll share that with you a second, was a heretic. Jesus, biggest heretic ever. Paul, heretic. Martin Luther, heretic. Whoever started Azusa Street, heretic. I'm sure somebody, Pastor Sonny, heretic. Anybody making a big difference, Pastor Sonny stands up on a stage and says, I will stand up for the downer. God is for people who have messed up their lives, and we are going to make a way for them to be restored and redeemed and reconciled and fulfill the purpose that God has for them. That takes bravery. It takes guts. It takes courage to relearn the love of God. It's not a weak thing to relearn the love of God. It's a strong thing to relearn the love of God. So God's getting closer, but God's also getting nicer. Let's go back to Abraham. In Abraham's day, God lived where? Up. All right, together. In Abraham's day, God lived? Up. Now, here's the question. How do you please God? If you lived in Abraham's day, how did you please him? How did you know? How did you know what to do? So they didn't know. The answer was this. The answer was, I want everybody to do this together, okay? This is fun to do, all right? In Abraham's day, how did you please God? Everybody together? I don't know. All right, let's try that. Everybody together, go. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. So they had to make stuff up. So here's what they did. They said that two things made you okay with God. One, sacrifice. Two, self-mutilation. So, so if I said to you, I want you to think about this. If I said to you, you can be okay with God if you sacrifice. What's your question? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, like, you can, you can be okay with God if you sacrifice. Your question is, okay, but how much do I sacrifice, right? And here was the answer. Everybody together, go. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. So you can be okay with God by sacrificing. How much do you sacrifice? We actually don't know. We don't know. So what they did is arbitrary sacrifice. And the only way, in one sect of ancient Sumerian culture, they told people to sacrifice until it rained. They lived in Iraq. 
it might not rain for months. And so, and so you, you had this arbitrary sacrificing. So what they did is, is somebody asked the question, what is the greatest thing you can give God? And someone said, your firstborn son. And so what they started doing is they started sacrificing their firstborn child because in their mind, that is the greatest thing they could give God. And that guaranteed that you would be okay with God. Second thing you had to do is self-mutilation. They would cut their arms. So if you came to your priest in those days and said, listen, um, I've offended the gods and I don't want a drought to come. I need to be okay with God. Here's what they would do. They would hand you a razor blade. They would say, start cutting. So if I said to you, you could be okay with God if you cut yourself. What's your question? How many cuts, right? And the answer was, everybody together? Nah, I don't know. So they would just arbitrarily cut themselves. And here was the problem with that. What if you do 10 cuts, but the magic number is 11? So you don't ever actually know if you've done enough cutting. So in Abraham's day, where did God live? Everybody together? Up. Abraham's day, God lived? Up. How much did you have to sacrifice to please God? I don't know. How much did you have to mutilate to please God? I don't know. So God shows up to Abraham. And he says, Abraham, my name is God Almighty, El Shaddai. I love the grace of God with Abraham. Abraham. God shows up to Abraham, and he's like, Abraham, you got a bunch of gods. I'm sure you're wondering who's in charge. That's me. <laughs> Abraham says, good, at least you're talking. What do you want from me? And, Abraham, and El Shaddai says, I want you to do two things. First, I want you to circumcise yourself with a rock. That's an odd command. God's first command to a 90-year-old man was pick up a rock, swing hard, don't miss. <laughs> Have you ever seen a 90-year-old man? His hand shakes. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Hey, Betty, say a prayer for me, sweetheart. This is going to be interesting. I hope I, uh, I don't see real good these days. I'm going to tell you. This gonna... So God tells him. To mutilate. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. This is a discipleship night, so I want, I want you to think about this for a second, okay? How was circumcision grace? Circumcision was grace because you can only ever circumcise yourself one time. It did away with multiple cutting. You can only ever circumcise yourself once. Like, honestly, if you can circumcise yourself twice, <laughs> you the man. I don't know what to say. <laughs> like, wow. <laughs> Aren't you something? <laughs> you know how guys are. They'd be comparing. Took me four. <laughs> no, circumcision is grace because you can only ever do it one time. One off and you're now done. No more cutting. No more cutting. And then what's the second thing he told Abraham to do? He said, I want you to kill your son. This is what all gods wanted. Do you understand that in, if you go back and read Genesis, Abraham does not ask why and he does not ask how. It just simply says, so Abraham took Isaac to a high place. Why would you go to a high place? Where does God live? Up. So you got to go as high as you can. And so he took Isaac to a high place. And how do you, how do you get something from a low place to a high place? What do you do? You put it on fire and then the, the smoke would rise to the gods. And so Abraham lays Isaac down on this altar. And Karen Armstrong makes this point. She's a historian. She says, for the first time in the history of all gods anywhere, a god stopped the sacrifice and provided one. For the first time in history, 
that God ever did that. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. Stop. This is discipleship, okay? I want you to think about this. So Abraham comes down off the high place, and Isaac is walking behind him. What is Abraham called by his neighbors? Heretic. What? You get back. All of us had to kill our children, and you are no exception. You get up there and you kill yours. That is how it's done here. It's in our verses. It's in our websites. It's in our pamphlets. It's in our fundamental truths. Abraham, if you don't do this, you're going to cause a drought to be on the whole region because God is going to be unhappy with us. But Abraham was willing to relearn the love of God. Abraham says, actually, no, God just told me that we don't have to do that. It's not just me. You don't have to do it either. We can be set free from this bondage of child sacrifice. Do you realize that if Abraham doesn't do that, we might still be killing children today? Surely someone would have between now and then. But, but Abraham was the first person to say, no, our God is nicer than what you think. The people of Ur, people of Ur didn't believe it. And so they put him out of town. But before he came out of town, the Talmud, which is a Jewish history book, the Talmud tells the rest of the story. The Talmud says that Abraham was so moved by the, by, by the grace and compassion of this God that he, got, he went back to his house and he destroyed all of his idols in his room of idols. So Abraham had this room of idols and he took an axe and he destroyed all the idols in the room of idols except one. And he took the one that was left and he stood him in the center of the room and he put the axe in his hand. So the next day when Abraham's dad came in to worship, he said, Abraham, what happened in here? And Abraham said, I don't know. There must have been a fight amongst the gods, and this one won. <laughs> Which leads me to this observation. How many years was it between God first calling Abraham and Abraham having the guts to destroy all of his idols? 20 to 25 years. God was patient with Abraham for 20 some odd years before Abraham had the guts to destroy his idols. How about you? How long has it been since God first started calling you and you still have idols in your life? And someone might tell you, oh, if you don't get rid of them, God's going to destroy you. No, no, no. My experience with God is that God is very patient. And that God is patient with you, therefore we should be patient with others. Where would you be tonight had Jesus not touched your life? Can we be patient enough to let God do his work? Or, or do we have to be the Holy Spirit? Last I checked, there's no job vacancy in the Trinity. <laughs> that we are called to love and to minister and to bring truth and light to situations. And we are to let God be God and us be us. Abraham was willing to relearn the love of God. So, so to Abraham, who, what was God's name? Everybody together with some gusto say El Shaddai. Go. El Shaddai. A little more gusto go. El Shaddai. So in Abraham's day, God's name was El Shaddai. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Who's God? El Shaddai. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Who's God? El Shaddai. Jacob has 12 children. Who is God? El Shaddai. 12 children have 12 children. Who is God? El Shaddai. 144 kids have 12 kids. Who is God? El Shaddai. The math is getting too hard. Who is God? El Shaddai. 20 generations later, who is God? El Shaddai. There is no God but El Shaddai. No other name in heaven other than El Shaddai. No other God other than El Shaddai. Our God's name is El Shaddai. No other God but El Shaddai. It's in our websites. It's on our pamphlets. It's in our verses. It's in our fundamental truths. There is no God but El Shaddai. And Moses comes along. And Moses is a fugitive Premeditated murderer. 
I look this way and that, and seeing no one, I killed the man and hit him in the sand. Problem was, the next day the sand shifted and you got this leg sticking up out of the sand. <laughs> Moses was a fugitive, premeditated murderer. And it says he's out in the middle of the wilderness tending sheep. And it says a bush starts to talk to him. And the bush says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Wait a minute. Who's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? What is his name? El Shaddai. There is no God but El Shaddai. No other name but El Shaddai. Put it in pamphlets, websites, verses, fundamental truths, concrete, whatever you want to put it in. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses says, oh, hello, El Shaddai. Let me take my shoes off. The bush says, no, my name is yud Hey vav Hey. My name, Yahweh. My name is yud Hey vav Hey. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses argues with the bush. And he says, no, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is El Shaddai. Everybody knows that. The bush says back to him, I introduced myself to Abraham as, as El Shaddai, but by my name, Yahweh, they did not know me. So God's changing his name. But by the way, in Hebrew, you can't say Yahweh. yud Hey vav Hey is unspeakable. It would be like me saying, my name is Hishmulavikimim. <laughs> What's your name? Plavishimakavikimim. Tell me your name again. yud Hey vav Hey. What? yud Hey vav Hey. Come again. yud Hey. God, that's not even a word. I know. My name is yud Hey vav Hey. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, I want you to follow me for a second. So Moses goes back to Egypt to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. And he changes God's name. How well did that conversation go? Hey, I know. I know that you thought God's name is El Shaddai, but God's telling me his name is actually something else. His name is El Shaddai, but it's also yud What's his name again, Moses? yud Moses is not even a word. I know. His name is yud How did he tell you this, Moses? I was out in the wilderness by myself. Anybody else witness this? No. How did he tell you? Talking bush. Which leads to this observation. A talking bush told me, and no one else was there to witness this. This is so credible. And what did the Israelites call Moses? Heretic. Do you know they called him a heretic until he brought water out of a rock? When you part the Red Sea and bring water out of the rock, it tends to lend credibility to what your story is. <laughs> you can't go changing God's name. Yud, hey, vav, hey. The problem was they didn't know what to do with the name. You can't say it. It doesn't say anything. So the rabbi said, no, 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 no. No, no, listen, listen, listen. Yud, hey, vav, hey. And they said the name of God was actually breathing. It sounds like breath. Yud, hey, vav, Hey, so a later writer said that your life is held together by the name of God. Isn't it interesting that the first thing you do when you're born is you have to breathe. You have to say the name of God. The last thing you do before you die is you take your last 
breaths. You see now why prophets said anything taking breath belongs to God. Why? Because they're using God's name to sustain their life. Do you understand that if you had coffee tomorrow with an atheist who was saying he doesn't believe in God, he would be using the name of the one he doesn't believe in to sustain his own life. And God is kind enough to allow it. Yud, hey, vav, hey. Breath. When Jesus taught people how to pray, he said, and when you pray, simply say this, my father who is in heaven, horrible translation. In the original Greek and in the Hebrew version of Matthew, it says this, my father who's as close to me as the air that I breathe, I stop and become aware of you. Essentially, prayer is any time you're aware that God is right here with you. Essentially, it's a command to be God aware. Let's review. In Abraham's day, where did God live? Everybody together? Up. Abraham's day, God lived? Up. How much did you have to sacrifice? I don't know. How much did you have to mutilate? I don't know. Moses' day, God lived in a tent. How much did you have to sacrifice? Once. So Moses gets this revelation from God about kindness. And he wrote a book called Leviticus, which we don't think is kind at all. That's because we live now. But in their day, Leviticus was the kindest book about God ever written. Why? It's the, only, it's the first and only book ever written about any God anywhere that put limits on sacrifice. How much did you have to sacrifice? One sacrifice per family per year. And then everything's all good. One sacrifice per family per year. How much did you have to mutilate? Once. Circumcise on the eighth day and then no more cutting ever. Do you see now, when Moses wrote in Leviticus, see to it that none of you put markings on your bodies, that he never dreamed that people would sit around and argue about whether or not it's a sin to have a tattoo. That was not the point. The point was don't mark up your body in order to get God's attention. You never have to live that way ever again. This was not law, this was grace. It took a group of people who thought they might have to cut themselves and God's going, nope, no cutting. In my world, no cutting. If you need to cut, circumcise on the eighth day and then be done. But no more cutting. Oh, sacrifice, one sacrifice per family per year, be done with it. So there was a group of people who called Moses a heretic. Why? There's no way God's that nice. It's in our verses. It's in our pamphlets. It's in our websites. It's in our fundamental truths. My grandpappy believed that. If it was good enough for my grandpappy, it was good enough for me. Mm. So they came against him and they started something called the oral law. In Leviticus, there's 613 commands. They said, there's no way God's that nice. So they created 3,000 other commands on top of the 613 to make sure that they kept God mean. And they changed it from one sacrifice per family per year to one sacrifice per person per sin. And they made God meaner because it's just in people to do that. So Moses said, no, 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 this is all it takes. This is it because God is getting closer, but he's also getting nicer. Let's review. In Abraham's day together, where did God live? Up. How much did you have to sacrifice? I don't know. How much did you have to mutilate? I don't know. Moses' day, he lived in a tent. How much did you have to sacrifice? Once. How much did you have to mutilate? Once. Then the prophets came along and they start making God nicer. The prophet Micah says this, does the Lord delight in sacrifices? Surely not. What does the Lord require of you but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with the Lord your God? There's no way God's that nice. No way. And what did they do to Micah? They killed him. 
They killed him. Jesus talks about it in Matthew 23. He says, the ones you call prophets now are the ones you killed yesterday. Anytime someone comes along who's making God nicer than you think, you try to kill him. And by the way, you're going to kill me in a little bit. And that's just what's happening. That's just what's happening. The prophets come along and they give these glimmers of hope, like no more sacrificing, none of this. Then Jesus comes along and Jesus makes God nicer than anyone ever thought possible. Like there was this one time, Jesus meets a, um, a tax collector up a tree. And this tax collector gets so moved by the compassion of Jesus, he says, look, I'll give half of what I have to the poor. And Jesus said, that's it. Salvation has now come to this house. Is Jesus allowed to do that? And what if you had been there and he asked your advice? What would you have told him? What if you'd have been there and he turned around and said, hey, what do you reckon I do with this guy in a tree? You say, I don't know, Jesus. What do you reckon? Well, um, I'm thinking I'm going to call him saved. Would you say, well, Jesus, this is your world, do whatever you'd like? Or would you be the person quoting all the scriptures as to why he can't be saved without saying the sinner's prayer? Without offering a sacrifice. If he doesn't get saved like us, he can't be saved. Because <laughs> if you're number two, you're annoying. Is Jesus allowed to do what he likes? Jesus said, no, 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 I'm going to call him saved. Like there, there's this one time, is Jesus allowed? Can he do that? Is Jesus allowed to do what he likes? Or does he have to run it by you? Or leaders or hey there's this one time um there's this prostitute and she gets so moved by the compassion of jesus that she kneels down and washes his feet with her hair remember that and, and remember jesus jesus what does jesus say that's it all your sins are now forgiven what no sacrifice no sinner's prayer no asking jesus in their heart now how does he do that and, and what if he asked your advice is he allowed like if he said, hey, what do you reckon I do with this lady? She's washing my feet with her hair. And you say, I don't know, Jesus, what do you reckon? You say, I, don't, I think I'm going to forgive all of her sins. Would you be like, well, Jesus, this is your world. Do what you like. Or would you be like, no, no, let me tell you what the Bible says. <laughs> and aren't you glad that's not the rule? Like, like you know, what, like, sir, what if you met her one day and she said, how did you meet the risen Christ? You said, I came to church and I gave my heart to Jesus. It was the best day of my whole life. And, you, and she said, yeah, but did you wash his feet with your hair? I mean, what if you did that, sir? And what about you? What if you had to wash his feet with your hair? And sir, you'd be in real strife. And like, and, sir, oh my word. Like, oh, sir, I would never offend a man of your size, but nonetheless, you could not wash. Sir, with all respect for you to wash his feet with your hair, it'd be a four-man job. You'd have to be turned upside down and you'd like a buffer. People say, people say, Jesus is the only way, Shane. Jesus is the only way. Is that okay to say? Is Jesus the only way? Yes, Jesus is the only way. I'm not trying to trick you. Yes, people are like, I don't know. I don't. Yes, yes, Jesus is the only way. But there's a big difference between saying Jesus is the only way and my way to Jesus is the only way to Jesus. People came to Jesus all kinds of ways. Like, like there's this one time, Jesus is preaching in a house and it's full. And there's this paralyzed guy, and his friends, he can't get in, so his friends cut a hole in the roof and lower him in from the four corners of his mat. And this is what it says, and Jesus saw the faith of his friends and declared his sins forgiven. Is Jesus allowed? Is that possible? Can you get saved because someone else is believing for you? I don't know. You say, I say, and so what if you're, let me talk to you moms for a second. So if you're a mom here and you're believing for your unbelieving children, 
keep doing that. Jesus sees that stuff, man. A later writer said it this way. The faith of a saved wife can save her unbelieving husband. We believe it. Someone asked me once, so can you go to heaven by marrying the right woman? I said, I don't know, but I know you'll live in hell if you marry the wrong one. That is for <laughs> sure. So all of you guys who are believing for your loved ones to come to Jesus, you keep doing that. Jesus sees that stuff. Jesus kept making God nicer and nicer. Like there's this one time Jesus is having a really bad day. And um, he ends up nailed to a cross. That's a pretty bad day, right? And so he's having a really bad day. And um, he's naked and beat half to death. And um, they're, they're throwing dice for his clothes and mocking him and hitting him and spitting on him. It's just a terrible sort of day. And so he, he looks to his left and there's this guy who's a thief. Like this guy's done time in prison and has ruined his life and just... Really, really has no, has no authority to ask for anything. And, and, and so this guy looks at Jesus and all, he can't breathe. So all he does is say, please remember me. And what does Jesus say to him? Well, Bo, you better hurry up and get saved like them other people. No, what does he do? He, he, says, he says, that's enough for me. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Today is your day. So Jesus, even in his worst day, was still thinking about others. Which, by the way, where did Jesus go that day? It says he went to hell and preached to the dead. But yet, so is there ever a moment where paradise and hell is the same? Maybe Jesus is so big that when he walks into hell, it becomes paradise. What, what, whoa, how much power does Jesus have? Oh. Oh, and while, by the way, while we're at it, let's go ahead and forgive everybody at the foot of the cross, too. Let's go ahead and forgive them, too. Which, by the way, what were they doing at the foot of the cross? Were they repenting? No, they were throwing dice for his clothes. Jesus forgives you because of the cross, not because of what you're doing at the foot of it. Oh, that is relearning the love of God. See, see let, let, let's review. In, in Abraham's day, where did God live? Everybody together? Up. Uh, Abraham's day, God lived? Up. Uh, how much did you have to sacrifice? I don't know. How much did you have to mutilate? I don't know. Moses' day, God lives in a tent. How much do you have to sacrifice? Once. How much do you have to mutilate? Once. David's day, God lives in a temple. Jesus' day, God lives in flesh. Jesus comes along and says, you've heard it said one sacrifice per family per year. I say to you, one sacrifice for the whole world for all time. He's making God nicer. God's getting closer. God's getting nicer. But what happens to people if your entire economic system is based on selling forgiveness to people and a guy comes along and says, no more of that, we're going to just do it for free, what happens to you? You get killed. Why? Because you're trying to relearn the love of God. Jesus was a heretic in his day. How many, how many lashes did they beat him with? 39. Why? Why would, they, why would they beat people with 39 lashes? The fallacy is that 40 would kill you. That's not true. That's not true. Sometimes 31 killed you. The reason they beat you with 39 lashes is because there was 39 parchment of Torah scroll. And so if they thought you were doing away with the Torah, they would give you 39 lashes, one for each parchment of Torah scroll you were doing away with. He was a heretic because he was willing to relearn the love of God. So God was getting closer and God was getting nicer. Let's review. Everybody together. In Abraham's day, God lived where? 
Uh, how much did you have to sacrifice? I don't know. How much did you have to mutilate? I don't know. Moses' day, he lives in a tent. How much you have to sacrifice? Once. How much you have to mutilate? Once. In Jesus' day, God lives in flesh. How much you have to sacrifice? None. How much you have to mutilate? None. God's getting nicer. But God keeps getting nicer. In Paul's day, God lives in us. The rest of the New Testament makes God even nicer than that. And here's what the rest of the New Testament says. Six different places by four different authors, it says that Jesus was crucified before the foundation of the world. Actually, the cross was not an inauguration of a new reality. It was a manifestation of what God was like all along, which makes so much more sense to me. That God was mean and then tortures his own son and now he's nice. That makes no sense. The writers of the New Testament in six different places say that Jesus was crucified before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.4, he was foreordained before the foundation of the world. 1 Peter 1.20, Jesus was crucified before the foundation of the world, but in these last days was made manifest so you could see it. In other words, you wouldn't believe it without seeing it, so he showed you. Hebrews 4.3, Jesus' sacrificial work was completed before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13.8, Blessed are those whose names are found written in the book of the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. And my personal favorite, Hebrews chapter 9. Didn't you know all along, all along, didn't you know all along it was impossible for the blood of sacrifices to take away your sin? Oh, God. Woo. Who wrote Hebrews? Everybody together? I don't know. Why don't we know? Because people who said that got killed. And whoever wrote Hebrews said, I figured this out. I'm writing an anonymous letter. Hebrews. <laughs> Didn't you know all along it was impossible for the blood of sacrifice to take away your sin? Hang on. If you're a Jewish theologian and someone writes that, what are you saying? Wait a minute. My Bible says this. Here are 19 verses in Leviticus that clearly say you must sacrifice to, for, for, for the redemption of your sins. Are you kidding me? This is going against everything great-grandpappy knew. Uh-uh. No, 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 no. Didn't you know all along it was impossible for the blood of sacrifices to take away your sin? That's, that, what's that called? That's called heresy. The writer of Hebrews is a hero today only because he or she was willing to be a heretic then. No, 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 wait a minute, hang on. Didn't you know all along it was impossible for the blood of sacrifice to take away your sin? But God simply gave you sacrifices to do because your conscience needed to be appeased. In other words, you thought you needed to sacrifice, but so God said, all right, fine. If you think you need to, fine. But it's, o it's only, do you think God needs that? And that makes so much more sense, like... God loves you one minute, you do something bad, he hates you the next. You kill an animal, he loves you again. That's not God, that's a psychopath, right? R writer of Hebrews, didn't you know all along it was impossible for the blood of sacrifice to take away your sin? But God simply gave you sacrifice due because you thought you needed to and your conscience needed to be appeased. For don't you know that Jesus died before the foundation of the world at the culmination of the ages? <laughs> culmination of the ages does that sound like a jewish theological principle no it sounds like a rock festival where'd you go last weekend went to the culmination of the ages it was awesome <laughs> hebrews 9 second timothy 1 9 and your salvation was given to you in jesus christ before the creation of the world so when were you saved 
was saved before the foundation of the world. So what happened on April 17, 2009? What happened then? You just simply chose to possess what had always been yours. Listen, there's a big difference between ownership and possession. Big difference. If I said to you, you have $11 billion buried in your backyard. Do you own it? Yes, it's in your yard. Do you possess it? No. So if you had $11 billion in your backyard, what would you spend the night doing? Digging it up, right? You'd go get a shovel and you'd start digging, right? Now follow me here. If you start digging for $11 billion that's already yours, are you not searching for what you hope for but you have not seen as yet? And that is faith. Faith, to be saved by faith, is to be saved in the pursuit to possess what you already own. Like, okay, God hated you, you prayed a magic prayer, he loves you now? That is ridiculous. God loved you before the foundation of the world. He wrote a story for your life before the foundation of the world. He wrote your name in his book before the foundation of the world. The only question in your life is, will you reach out and possess what's always been yours? It's been sitting there for you all along. The dinner is set. Will you sit down and eat it? See, see look, if, if Jesus wasn't crucified before the foundation of the world, Christianity makes no sense. Because here's our message. If that's not true, here's our message. That... Um, God created the world, and even though he was God, he lacked the foresight to foresee human rebellion. And so when humans rebelled, it was like surprised him. And so he had to rack his brain and come up with a solution. And even though he was God, his best idea was to torture and kill his only son by sending him on a suicide mission. And even though his only son obeyed the suicide mission, it was still horribly unsuccessful because billions of people are still going to burn in hell forever, and God never gets what he wants anyway. Is that our message? Join us. That makes so much sense. What if the good news is better than that? What if it's God created the world and because he was God, he was able to foresee human rebellion, so he loved us all enough to fix the whole broken thing before it started, and the rest of the story is him convincing his creation of what's always been true. The cross did not inaugurate a new reality. The cross simply manifested what God was like all along. You want to see what God's like? Here it is. Here it is. God is like love. You see how later writers, they have trouble putting words around it, like our God is love, our God is mercy, our God is, is, is indescribably forgiving. Like there's nothing like him. All of these guys were beaten and died because they were willing to relearn the love of God. And here's my question for you tonight, and this is so huge in a discipleship process, and that is this. Will you make a commitment to be a person who is willing to relearn the love of God, not just for you and not just for people like you, but for people who aren't like you? Will you be willing to, to, to step back and relearn the love of God for those people, whoever those people are? Because there was a point in your life where you were those people. Are you willing to remember your fish? What has God saved you from? In other words, let me say it this way. You can't want mercy for yourself and then justice for everybody else. If God saved, if you want mercy for you, you want God to give mercy to them. You want everybody to engage, to possess what they already have in God. You want everybody to participate and get the shovel out and start digging up what God's had for them all along. You want everybody to participate in that because that is the best life. That is what we're talking about. I urge you to be people who not just, you don't just embrace the cross that saves you. You embrace the cross you were called to carry, to show this to the rest of the world. How, what does it look like to be people who relearn the love of God? Now tomorrow we'll pick up right there.
Because I want to take you on a journey in the next step of that for yourself and for the world around you. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you and we honor you. We proclaim your king. There's none like you. We're humbled by you, Lord. I want everybody in the room right now to take 10 seconds, and I want you to remind yourself of what you were saved from. Where would you be tonight had God not saved your life? Where would you be tonight had God not saved you? I want you to become aware of how much you've been forgiven, how much grace has shown you. Now, in that same breath, I want you to ask the Lord, be brave enough to ask the Lord this, Lord, who in my life right now do I need to forgive? My dad, my mom, the person who stole from me. Who in my life right now do I need to forgive and celebrate your mercy for? I want you to pray this last prayer underneath your breath. Lord, give me the courage to see things differently and the irresistible urge to respond to what I see. Let me be someone who relearns the love of God. I want to be more like you. Amen. Would you look this way? Thanks so much for letting me be a part of your night. I hope that was a real blessing to you. I, I would call your pastor my friend. I, I can't wait to get to know him even better and to journey with you guys a lot because you know what? I was moved by what you guys do here. I am continually moved to, to, to watch you guys get up and lead a service and, and lead worship and just what you guys are doing here is nothing short of bringing heaven to every place we see hell on this earth. It's taking lives and restoring dignity and pride and self-esteem and reminding people who they are. It's that. It's that. The Bible says it this way in Jeremiah twenty-two sixteen. It says, when you take care of the poor and the afflicted, that is what it means to know me, declares the Lord your God. The only definition in the whole Bible of what it means to know God is when you're doing something for somebody who can't possibly do anything in return for you. That's what this church is about. That's what your pastor's about. I travel this world, and I'm telling you, you have one of the great pastors in the world right here in Hayward. You do. You have the great one, one of the great men of God in the world. You ought to get behind him. You ought to ask him, hey, what can we do to help you move this thing? I so love coming back. Y'all come back. Y'all come back through. Anytime I come back through here and he wants to have me, we'll just come and we'll sit and we'll talk about God because I love it. I love what you guys are doing. I believe in you with all my heart. Um, until tomorrow night, grace and peace be to you. God bless. Praise the Lord. Come on, give the Lord a hand of praise. Amen. Stan will be here tonight. This is what I would like to do. I, I felt moved in, in my heart. To do this, you know. A lot of